And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, December 27th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, on the human capital front, quantum computing is easier said than done. Plus, a year-end good news story on agency financial management. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal agencies, you've got a bit of a reprieve from sequestration budget cuts that were expected to start on January 1st. The Office of Management and Budget says agencies do not have to figure out how to cut that 1% from their discretionary budgets in the short term anyway. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me with why this is the case. And Jason, maybe a quick reminder here to start with on why that 1% discretionary budget cut is even on the table in the first place. It brings up that old term, Tom, sequestration. We don't want to ever talk about it again. It was very painful back several, uh, more than 10 years ago, but it's back as a possibility for 2024. And it all comes back to the debt ceiling deal that President Biden signed into law in June called the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Now, in that bill, basically it said if the Congress does not and the president does not get the bills passed on time uh, for this, for 2024 and 2025, a 1% discretionary spending cut would come into place. And what OMB has said was, actually, hold on, January 1st is coming around the corner, but we're, we don't think we, we're going to have to do that quite yet. But it all tags back to this idea that Congress wanted to almost punish themselves, which in the sense of punishing the administration, the executive branch, rather than themselves if they don't get their jobs done. And, and I think uh, I think that's a, been a big concern for a lot of uh, organizations around the government. Yeah, Congress talking about fiscal responsibility sounds like someone talking about sexual morality in a body house, but that's just my way of looking at it. Why did OMB come to this conclusion that the 1% cut won't be needed just yet? OMB put out a frequently asked questions for 2024 discretionary spending, and they sent it to agencies about a week ago in, in, in late December. And what they determined, and again, this gets back Backed up by a Congressional Research Service report that we also have linked up on federalnewsnetwork.com, that basically said under a short-term continuing resolution, the sequestration cuts do not need to kick in. You do not have to cut that one percent. In fact, OMB said to agencies, take no action on January first, and no action should be taken even in the short term to worry about this and don't pre uh, do pre cuts. Don't even worry about it because I think what they're saying is. Under the continuing resolution that was passed and signed into law, and Tom, as again, another reminder here, President Biden signed that into law mid-November, right before Thanksgiving, that funded some agencies through January 19th and others through February 2nd. But what OMB is saying is let's see if Congress can get all the bills, uh, 12 spending bills passed, and then we'll see where we stand and decide whether or not we have to do sequestration of 1%. Or by April 30th, they said, if all appropriations bills are not passed, then we will see at that time where we're at in terms of having needing to cut. And, and, and again, I think I just want to reiterate here, this is part of the reason why they don't believe the sequestration is necessary at this point on January 1st, and this goes back to a Congressional Research Service report, is because there are rescissions that are done as part of the continuing resolution that brings agencies, generally speaking, underneath the caps that were set in the FRA back in June. Right. So I wonder if this also indicates that agencies have not been spending at what they perceive to be their maximum allowance, maybe because they were afraid of this happening, and now they're coming in under. 
what we hear time and again during continuing resolutions is you can't do any new starts. You can't really look at anything that can be considered new spending. So I think, Tom, generally speaking, what we've seen over the years is agencies seem to kind of pull back to a certain extent on their spending under a continuing resolution. They don't even want to spend what they spent the previous year to a certain extent because they're worried about, well, when Congress does pass the budget, if we are spending at a rate that's too high, we're going to have to have bigger cuts later in the year. And I think this is what you hear from uh, contractors and vendors who say, hey, what's going on with contract one or contract two? Why hasn't it come out the door yet? Why haven't they awarded it yet? And I think there's a lot of that that has a very trickle down effect on all agency spending. So uh, I'm not sure they know yet how much they've spent. I mean, I'm sure they're following it in terms of their general ledger, but I'm not sure that's come into play yet. But I think what OMB is saying very much so is let's see what Congress does before we decide to take that 1% haircut. And the last time agencies had that cut, you and I were both around. This was 2013, the dark landscape wandering through with sequestration that really happened. This is not quite the same situation. Not at all. And, and if you remember from the 2013, during the Obama administration, sequestration was much deeper. It was about $85 billion were cut, about 7.8% from the defense agencies, about 5% from the civilian agencies. This would be much more of a haircut I'll use, a trim. The, you know, I think uh, I've, as I've talked to some people over the past couple months about this, they say it's going to take more effort and spend more money to figure out where that 1% should come from than actually that one percent that Congress is is rescinding back, and what OMB has also said in the frequently asked questions is, we will send out basically more guidance. We will figure out how to get to that one percent. It may not be one percent across the board. It could be half a percent here. It could be three quarters of a percent there. It could be one point two percent over here. I think there's still a lot of calculations that are going on, and I think that's the other reason OMB has said, hey, let's not worry about it until we get closer to either a Congress passing the budgets or b the April 30th deadline. All right. So that sword in the ceiling is going to stay stuck there for the meantime. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a year-end good news money story. One agency had great financial management results. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Housing and Urban Development Department received some good news as the year closes. It achieved a clean financial audit opinion with no material weaknesses. It even won praise from its inspector general. For how this happened, we turn to the chief financial officer, Benay Singh. Mr. Singh, good to have you with us. Good morning. Good to be here. And I guess the significant thing is not that this is not the first time. And now for a lot of agencies, great. We got a first clean opinion. Tell us more why not your first and why not being the first is significant. You know, first is always great, but this is about sustainability and a continued focus on what an unqualified or clean audit opinion means. In addition to this is the first time without a material weakness and a material weakness obviously is, you know, if there's significant deficiencies over internal controls of our financial reporting. So that itself is significant. In addition, this year, we also hit the timeline of November 15th, which has been eluding us for quite some time. So what it's showing is the sustainability and the ability of our teams to start really leveraging our rigorous processes that we put in place to not only get that clean opinion, to do it on time, to do it removing the material weakness. I mean, this continues to show and should enable the public trust. And for those of us that aren't enthralled by federal finance, which I find fascinating personally, but maybe everybody doesn't, 
what is the process by which the opinion is rendered and who renders it? Yes, this opinion, we have an external auditor, Clifton Larson Associates, CLA. In the past, it was done by our Office of uh, Inspector General, our IG. But having an, a third party, external party, uh, free, you know, independent is critical. So the process is, you know, during the year, they will evaluate our controls. They will look at our processes, talk to management, talk to the programs, and really test whether all our financial statements are free of material errors. Yeah, interesting. And just again, on the civics side of this, you're the CFO and the chief financial officer has one function, kind of a controller type of function, but then the accounting function is not necessarily mm-hmm. within that channel. Maybe just a brief background on how that works. Actually, the accounting is, so the, the CFO role has several functions and really getting this clean audit opinion, it does take a village. Financial management, of which Melajo Kobaki is our assistant CFO, runs the core elements of financial management and controls. But the accounting team, where I have Nita Nigam, who's the assistant CFO there, our systems team, which looks at the financial systems, they all play a role together along with the program. So the CFO's sole role is obviously financial stewardship, ensuring we do have clean audit opinions. But there's a lot more that happens behind the scenes in a CFO function. Yeah, sure. It's a pretty complex function, and it's been mm-hmm. developed almost like a nurturing porridge over the past 30, 35 <laughs> years or so since the CFO Act. And you mentioned that this time there were no material weaknesses. Which was the last mm-hmm. one to get excised out of here? It was the validation of grant accruals, which was the last one, and that was across several programs. Well, that's a big one, though, because HUD is a major granting agency. And if you look across government, grants management is the object of a lot of oversight, a lot of IG, a lot of GAO, a lot of congressional concern over the years. So to not have a material weakness in something so crucial that's also uniquely federal, that sounds like a big deal. Yes, it has been. And the teams have been working on this. This is not like something that happened within 12 months or 18 months of me being here. This goes back to continued management focus on this. You know, HUD has been set up as a decentralized agency where the programs do have their own financial analysts. They put out the grants and we work with them. So it's different than just kind of a private sector organization where you have more of an autocratic you know, the CFO controls everything. So to be able to do it this way is also, you know, I think substantial. It shows that kind of connective tissue with the programs and the CFO, continuing to build that relationship so that this will continue. It's not just a one-off. We're speaking with Vinay Singh. He is the chief financial officer at Housing and Urban Development. And from the CFO standpoint, sitting in your chair, what are the things, the indicators, the dashboard lights that you watch day to day to make sure that this vast and complicated and very hard to see inside of function like finance and accounting and cash control and all the rest of it is operating the way it should and that nothing horrible is brewing under the surface? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I have several dashboards that I look at, one around the controls that we talked about where financial management looks at things like the single audit compliance and other aspects of accounting and looking at balances and receivables. But in addition, it's about kind of some of the compliance around systems. So, you know, one of the other key progress areas that we've made is that all HUD systems 
are now FFMIA compliant, which is the Federal Financial Management Improvement Act, and we resolved our last system non-compliance. So even getting our systems, and you know, um, if you're obviously following government, that's a significant piece. Um, we've got budget reports that I look at. I look at something we call the air reports around assurance, integrity. There's several key pieces that I monitor daily, some weekly, some monthly, and then have discussions with the team around. I would guess the the magic in this is being able to spot things before they turn into material weaknesses or some worse kind of financial leakage, which, you know, they pop up from time to time, fraud, improper payments and, and the like. Correct. And we do have dashboards around that. Our risk team that also sits in CFO, you know, monitors a variety of risks that we continue to monitor and mitigate. Um, and if you will, you're correct when we say, you know, catch things before they happen. So our teams have really continue to perform readiness reviews and risk assessments, and it's kind of an ongoing process. So it's year-long. Even though our financial year is fixed and ends September 30th, the teams are always looking three months out, six months out, and monitoring what, what is coming down the pipe. And is there an information technology type of enhancement that can help people because of many of the financial systems, and I think HUD mm-hmm. for a while there had some of the oldest systems still running in government. And I've, I think you've done a lot of modernization over the last few years. So it seems like the CIO is a good partner as you're trying to get best CFO practice established. 100%. 100%. CIO is fully integrated with us. Our teams all have great relationships and have built processes where we work together. And so that mentioning you know, our compliance with our FFMIA is critical, but also, you know, financial management overall was removed as a top management challenge for the department, where the OIG has said, you know, HUD has shown that sustained progress. But it does require technology and tools. We have had antiquated and continue to have some that we continue to, to try to make progress on. But we're starting to leverage, you know, tools that are a little bit more common, uh, such as the BI tools, the business intelligence tools. I know our teams are aggressively looking and using robotic process automation, RPA and bots, but just the ability to be able to process and transaction do data mining and data analytics. That's the critical part. That's where I think we've started to make progress and why this is the fourth year in a row, because, you know, relying on those older systems, it was very difficult to get comfort for the auditors around what we have. But now that we have more progressive systems, more information showing up in real time or closer to near time, it starts to give comfort and assurance to the auditors that we're understanding our transactions, we're seeing what's happening now, able to monitor the risks that could happen. Uh, And it's just that sharing of information, that transparency and that ability to cut across. And I would think that for a shrewd program manager, in fact, I've told hundreds of them over the years, your best friend in program management can be the CFO because they can help you be an ally in what you want to get done, but just don't try to do it without them. And so I'm guessing that having full control over financial management and getting that clean audit and knowing your processes are accurate can make you a better and more informed counselor to programs that are trying to find ways financially to get things done. Absolutely. I mean, what HUD's been doing is leveraging these process improvements and those IT resources you referenced to really reduce the monitoring burden on grantees where the programs can rely on our processes. And that reduces a lot of the manual efforts on many sides and increases that data integrity. So we use, uh, obviously, as you said, you know, technology and innovation to connect, analyze, visualize data, And that just lets our offices prioritize where the weak spots are. So now it's not just everything's on fire. 
we really are able to take a step back, understand where you know those weak spots are, and focus our efforts on strengthening the high-risk controls. And when you go to the Hill, you probably have a lot more credibility as an agency. Yeah, I think so. I believe so. And I think that's what, coming back to what I started with on public trust, I mean, that's what I try to instill in a lot of folks that don't understand that are not non-CFO, right? The, the program offices and others, why is this so important? I mean, a lot of this is compliance and, you know, a lot of folks push back and say, why are we doing so much? There's so much else to do. But I, you know, I try to convey the essence of the mission is if we're able to give you that clean audit opinion, that public trust is improved, the Hill and other stakeholders believe that we are able to have good financial stewardship of the monies and make improvements on our mission. And so therefore, yes, it's a, it's a circle and it's a life cycle and it continues. And just briefly, your own background to come to CFO because you sound passionate about this type of work. Absolutely. I mean, I started as an accountant, senior accountant. I did have a zigzag life, but I have held positions, as I tell my team, in almost every function that CFO has. I used to be an auditor. I used to be a staff accountant. I used to do risk work. I used to do controls work, budget work, and kind of analysis. So for me, that path up, and you know, most recently I was at SBA, but before that I was a partner at KPMG, and I do have a CPA, certified public accountant. You know, I love uh, numbers because numbers tell a story. So now in my role, it's not only making sure we've got this great stewardship, but also conveying that story, like I mentioned about public trust, so that others across the agency understand why CFO is important, continue to deepen our collaboration. And that just helps us get more transparency in real time and information and monitor these risks. So uh, you're one of those guys that reads the footnotes on financial statements. (laughs) I learned early on that everything's actually in the footnotes. Everything else doesn't matter, actually. You should read the footnotes first. Vinay Singh is Chief Financial Officer of Housing and Urban Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, comments are closed. Will the FedRAMP program actually get updated? But first, on the human capital front, quantum computing is easier said than done. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Defense Department ranks high among federal agencies seeking expertise in quantum computing, the next big thing in computing. DOD agencies have established several ways to recruit and hire people with chops in quantum subskills. But the Government Accountability Office finds they're not all following the best practices for getting the people they need. More now from the GAO's Director of Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics, Candace Wright. Ms. Wright, always good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again. And I guess that's an enduring issue. And this is the latest manifestation of the idea of human capital management and getting those bodies in for quantum. Give us the big picture here on this particular report. Indeed. Well, as you know, the U.S. government certainly faces challenges meeting its science and technology workforce needs. This has been something that's been widely reported, and quantum science is one of those areas. It's a nascent and evolving area. It requires highly specialized skill sets that are not widely available, but yet in high demand. We certainly find that quantum technology development is critical to national security and maintaining DOD's military advantage, especially in areas such as cryptography, computing, and sensing. So it's really imperative that that the department develop its workforce to remain competitive in this field. And what are some of those particular fields they need people in? 
Well, this area is certainly one that's multidisciplinary, and it can draw on uh, several disciplines like physics, engineering, computer science, and math, to name a few. One of the things that we encountered as we were charged with examining the department's quantum workforce planning and workforce development efforts is that defining the quantum workforce is really challenging. There isn't an existing occupational series, again, because of the multidisciplinary nature of this area. And so given that it's new and emerging uh, or nascent and emerging, you know, it's unclear what direction the field will go and more importantly, what the mix of professions will be. And so in light of this, we had our work cut out for us to identify the quantum workforce at DOD. So instead of defining the workforce using an existing occupational series, what we ended up doing was uh, reporting on personnel who are assigned to projects in the four defense labs in our scope. And so that was the Air Force, Army, and Naval Research Laboratories, as well as Naval Information Warfare Center Pacific. In doing this work, we found that DOD could tell us that there were about 255 staff who were working all or part of their time on quantum sensing, computing, and communications projects. Most of these staff have PhDs, and they were either physicists or engineers, and some of them were actually specialists in chemistry, computer science, and math. We did find overall that the labs that were in our scope were generally following leading practices for strategic workforce planning, meaning that they had identified the critical skills and competencies, they had developed workforce planning strategies, and set up administrative and other infrastructure to to be able to make progress in this area. So what were you looking at here? It sounds like everything is in place. They've got the people and the ways to get them in. Indeed, they certainly had these plans in place. But one of the things that we really saw was that there was a need for them to have mechanisms in place to monitor their progress against these plans and to make sure that they had a way to evaluate if they were uh, making progress. And so with that in mind, we did make four recommendations to the to the labs to address the gaps that we identified. Again, because we, we think that while it's important to have the plans in place, you want to make sure that you have a way to uh, assess progress, we want to make sure that you uh, are engaging the right leadership and organizational partners as you execute the plan so that you can make adjustments as needed along the way. We're speaking with Candace Wright. She's Director of Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. And these practices then apply for, I guess, any kind of specialized work that the department might be doing as a way of just making sure that all workforces are correct and that you're planning for them and your assessment of them are all in place. Fair to say? Indeed. These practices are not unique to quantum workforce needs and really apply as you think about workforce planning across the federal government. But they are really important in these emerging areas, especially when there are very highly specialized skill sets and that maybe are not widely available and DOD might be competing with other federal agencies for these skills, but then also private sector entities as well. And so having plans in place that allow them to adopt these practices will better ensure that the department can identify the skills that are needed, acquire the skills and talent that are necessary for them to build and maintain their uh, U.S. global leadership in quantum technologies. Yeah, the hiring and recruiting has to be not so ad hoc, but according to a plan and then you monitor, are the requirements being matched with the people we've got here? Planning is essential. As you know, the old adage goes, failing to plan is a plan to fail, but it's also important to make sure that you're monitoring progress against those plans. 
All right, so your recommendations, you had them for the Army, the Navy, another one for the Navy, another one for the Navy, uh, not so much for the Air Force, but what are you recommending here? So we're really recommending that they implement mechanisms to be able to monitor and evaluate the progress. I'll note that the department did concur with the recommendations. And again, I want to make clear that we did find that they were generally following these practices, but these are other elements that we think that they could improve upon to make sure that they have you know, the most robust and effective process in place. Because there is no, as you pointed out, job series that is described has the name quantum computing on it, but yet there are quantum programs and program executive offices and programs covering quantum by name in the military. That's kind Mm -hmm. of a, a little irony there. Indeed. And I think part of the challenge is because it is such a new area, an evolving area, there's still a need to understand, you know, what are the skill sets that are really needed? And, you know, how do you then determine the skill sets that align with the with the needs of the department? And, and this is the case, certainly ac- across the board for many emerging areas. So with that in mind, you know, it's at least important for the department to identify the, the competencies and skill sets, which it has done. And we think that that's certainly a good step in the right direction. It seems like there's an opportunity here, and this might not have been part of the report, but other agencies in the civilian side, energy and so on, are pursuing expertise in quantum and trying to understand what the implications are for when quantum actually becomes something practical. It could be decades. It might be never, but it could be, you know, in a few years, you just never know that there could be some government-wide collaboration on what do we need here for our quantum chops in the future. Yes. And so I'll highlight two things. Um, you know, we last year issued a technology assessment on quantum computing and communications. And one of the things that came out in the course of that work was really the need for the U.S. to build its quantum workforce. That can be done through existing programs, through job training programs or educational programs, but it might also require creating new ones to be able to meet the needs and expand the workforce. We certainly have also seen that there's legislation activity in this area. There was the National Quantum Initiative Act in 2018 that also highlighted the need to invest in uh, quantum workforce development. That uh, act is actually up for reauthorization this year, and there's been a House bill that's been introduced this month, or excuse me, last month in November, and that also included uh, some provisions to focus on strengthening quantum workforce, but also STEM development programs. And one thing we do know is that quantum computing doesn't look in any way, shape, or form, whether it's the programming for or the hardware, doesn't even look like computers. Some of the quantum machines that are out there now look like a contraption that's nothing like a standard computer. So it really is a unique skill set, even if it yet needs to be further defined. Definitely. And I think agencies are are wrestling with that issue as well. I did want to mention, though, Tom, uh, some of the STEM programs that DOD has in place, because that was another part of the work, was for us to survey the department to identify STEM education programs that exist and can be a means to grow the pipeline uh, to meet the department's needs. So in in this portion of the work, we identified that DOD had 41 uh, different STEM programs. There were about uh, at least 400 students and postdoctoral researchers who had participated in these programs in order to gain work experience at the defense laboratories. Two programs that I'll highlight, which we talk about in the work, are the Army and NSA Quantum Computing Graduate Research Fellowship. And this is a fellowship program that supports students and postdocs working on quantum information processing and quantum sensing projects. 
There's actually another program um, called the Science, Mathematics, and Research Transformation Program. And of course, the acronym for that is SMART, offers students full tuition, stipends, internships, and even guaranteed employment at DOD if they pursue STEM degrees in areas like physics, engineering, and computer science. So for your listeners who are going to be, you know, with family over the holidays, wanted to just, you know, be a good public servant here and mention some of these opportunities that they can then share with family members. All right. We'll make for an exciting table on, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm on that sure. Christmas dinner. <laughs> Candace Wright is Director of Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, comments are closed. Will the FedRAMP program actually get updated? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. An update to the long-running cloud computing security program known as FedRAMP has entered a new phase. Comments closed Friday, and now the authorities at the General Services Administration and mainly the Office of Management and Budget are percolating. For what the industry is hoping for, we turn to the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, before we get to FedRAMP, I just want to get what is the contractor community thinking about the seemingly headlong rush toward either another CR or coming from the mouths of members of Congress themselves, a shutdown. Well, thanks again for having me, Tom. And it's a pleasure to be here for your your uh, the last show that I'll be on for, for 2023. You know, you raise a very, very interesting point about the chatter that we're hearing both on the Hill and in the executive branch. And of course, we are always chattering here in the private sector wondering what the government's going to be doing. I will note that back in December, early December, um, Speaker Johnson sent out what we call a dear colleague letter to every member of Congress saying that he is not supportive of what he calls, quote, any further short-term extensions, end quote. And that leaves open the possibility of full-year appropriations or a long-term CR. It doesn't close the door on on a full year continuing resolution. And if you were a betting person, the smart money would be on having exactly that, a long-term continuing resolution. A couple of other points I'd like to to remind folks, particularly in the contracting world, is that there are two separate deadlines for the current CRs. One is for BILCON, Veterans Affairs, Agriculture, Energy, Water, and what we call THUD, which is Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development. That deadline is January 19th. Two weeks later, the rest of the government, the CR for them expires. And so we've got this interesting dynamic that we could be under a partial shutdown come January 19th if we don't have have another CR in any form, short or long term. This dynamic is something that we're watching very, very closely, and we are scrubbing to make sure we know what programs are included in that earlier deadline. I think in some sense, people would almost prefer a short shutdown followed by appropriations than a full-year continuing resolution? I think it's fair to say that some people would welcome that. The other piece that overlays all of this is the Fiscal Responsibility Act that passed last June, rather. That has a couple of interesting pieces to it that we are still working through. One is if we don't have full-year appropriations by December 31st, which we won't, there is an automatic cut to spending. 
And then if we don't have a 12 bills passed for their full year appropriations by April 30th, there's going to be, at least Congress is calling appropriations process sequestration, where all non-exempt programs are subject to a cut. These are not small cuts. We are looking at something in the order of 130 to $150 billion here in FY24 that are really going to be tough. And I'll give you a, an example, Tom. One of the exempt programs that the president has indicated will continue to be exempt is military personnel. So if DOD is subject to a cut, like the rest of the government, sequestration, you don't get a choice where programs you know, are cut, everyone gets cut. A lot of the cut will be borne by contracts. It's not going to be in the military personnel account. So anything that would have been cut from those accounts gets shifted over probably to contracts. Um, so we are watching very, very closely to see what happens with the sequestration piece here in calendar 24. And getting back to the question of a full year CR, unlike a temporary shutdown, which would be a rolling affair, this would be for the year. The cuts would simply apply across the board, except for those exempt programs you mentioned. Exactly right. Contractors then must be battening down the hatches in many ways. We are recommending that PSC member companies look very carefully at what their programs can sustain. One other element that I want to throw into this mix, Tom, is, is we've been hearing, again, chatter about how the Hill is negotiating border security, immigration policy, et cetera. And I understand that folks on the Hill are going to the, the White House and saying, you can take executive action in this area. You don't need to wait for legislation. But what's all tied up in that is the supplemental piece of the appropriations pie. And that is to say the White House back in October asked for $61 billion for Ukraine, $13 billion for border security, et cetera. All of that will be non-exempt, right? So anything cut, even if they happen to pass appropriations for these these areas like Ukraine, like border security, those are subject to cuts as well. And so that that's something that we got to keep in mind. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And let's get to FedRAMP. Now, again, the comments are in. People have made what they want to say about these. OMB, I guess, is the main authority here on how this program will be updated. What uh, What are you hoping for? OMB circulated a draft memo that it contained guidance for FedRAMP, um, which, as you know, is the uh, Federal Risk Authorization Management Program, mostly managed by GSA. They received more than 200 sets of comments. Uh, PSC is among those. What we are looking for mostly is more collaborative engagement with industry. Let's be honest, Tom, the cyberspace is fast evolving, and that cannot be said necessarily of government bureaucracy. So when we look at authorization pathways, when we look at continuous monitoring of, of cloud services, we really have to have very close collaboration so that the government can understand what industry is seeing in the threat domain, but also in what cloud services capabilities and how quickly they are evolving. And so PSC and our member companies are really looking for closer uh, coordination, collaboration, uh, real cooperation between the government and, and the industry that supports it. In many ways, it seems like FedRAMP has evolved away from, at least to some degree, its original idea, which was that if, if something is certified for use by this agency because of the FedRAMP process, then everyone else can rest assured that they too can use that cloud service. But that's not how it's actually worked out. It's almost like security clearance where you have it for the CIA, but it's not good enough for the NSA. Well, reciprocity, Tom, is something that is addressed a lot in this OMB draft memo. And I would mention that, you know, OMB was under no requirement to circulate this. 
publicly for comment. So we welcomed the opportunity to give them some real feedback on this draft memo before it goes final. Reciprocity, when you talk about what FedRAMP authorizes, and then there are individual agency authorizers. And so the question then becomes, if one entity authorizes it, is that authorization still good for other entities? And so this new memo talks about that. It talks about um, the FedRAMP board. It talks about GSA's role. And we're really looking forward to seeing how this gets implemented. And again, highlighting how important it is to have these iterative conversations with contractors um, so that they're not stuck in some sort of inflexible regime that we can actually evolve as the, the threat evolves. And finally, Stephanie, just before Christmas, I guess, and dated yesterday, the proposed rule on the cybersecurity maturity model certification program long awaited by the industry was issued from the Defense Department. What's the early take on it from the contractor standpoint? Glad you mentioned the, the timing of all this, Tom, because it really is an early Christmas present or the day after Christmas present, depending on whether you, you tie yourself to publication. But in discussions with industry about this, the overall sentiment is it it's about time. And, and I mean that in a couple of ways, right? The CMMC interim rule came out in late 2020, just over three years ago. And the administration at that time was in no hurry to uh, incorporate language into contracts. And then the Biden administration came in and, and uh, began a, a review of CMMC program writ large. And so we've been in holding pattern for just about three years now as industry. And you know it's a common refrain of, among those of us at PSC that America's contractors need a consistent approach to cybersecurity, and we also need time to implement the proposed rules. So digesting several hundreds of pages over the holidays is, is, a, is a good start, um, but it's, again, the beginning of this conversation uh, with a proposed rule. And we've got a couple of points that we've been iterating with our contractor community. What are those points? Well, I'm glad you asked. Again, on that theme of it's about time, we took a pause in terms of CMMC, but the threat did not take a pause. And what we are seeing in trends in cybersecurity now is fundamentally different from what we were seeing three years ago when the interim rule was published. And of course, it's going to be different three years in the future from now. And so we're really looking at how CMMC itself can evolve as a program and the requirements have the flexibility so that contractors can meet the threat, whatever it is, where it or wherever it is and whenever it occurs. The second point that we're highlighting with folks is, you know, the CMMC proposed rule seems to be significantly focused on technical data for weapon systems. And as representatives of the services industry, we are over here jumping up and down saying, don't forget about where the threat is growing in our arena. And that is to say, um, cybersecurity and cyber vulnerabilities are growing potentially in, in the services area. And so we're looking to see how CMMC can adapt to not just weapon systems, but to services. Another point is flow down. You know, in our world, uh, we have lots and lots of subcontractors. And so a subcontractor that is working at the a fifth sub-tier level or the 10th sub-tier level may not actually know they're on a Department of Defense contract. And they're certainly not going to certify that they are CMMC compliant. Um, and so how do we address the flow down of these requirements? And finally, this is a point, Tom, that I know is familiar to you because we've made it before on your show. And that is to say, we have defense contractors in our community and we have contractors who work primarily with civilian agencies, but many contractors operate with both defense and civilian agencies. And so what CMMC is, is a DOD requirement um, coming down the pike that defense contractors have to comply with. 
they're going to incur costs that their civilian contractors are not necessarily going to incur because VA, for example, won't have the same requirements. HHS, DHS, they won't have the same requirements. So what happens to those contractors who work in both of those spaces, incurring costs to comply with DOD and running up their their costs when they're trying to bid for civilian agency contracts? All right. So lots to dissect here and above all, read them and make your comments and get them in. Yeah. 60-day comment period. I've heard word that people will be asking for more time. I think that might be reasonable in this because it is hundreds of pages to digest. But yeah, send in lots of comments because this is an area of of a lot of long-awaited changes. So we're reading it with bated breath. Yeah. Hundreds of pages to say, have good cybersecurity or else. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Pentagon has finally issued its long-awaited cybersecurity maturity model certification proposed rules. The goal is to make sure contractors are following cybersecurity standards, and the Pentagon plans to phase in those requirements over the next few years. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest, and I guess the industry's been waiting on this rule now for in some sense, three years almost. That's right. It's actually been almost four years since the Pentagon announced uh, CMMC, gave the program a name. And of course, the goal then is the same as, as it is now, is to make sure contractors are following existing cybersecurity requirements that the Pentagon has really never gone out and checked before. So this proposed rule to institute the program is obviously a pretty big deal. Comments are due February 24th, so you can expect that on this 230-page-odd document, people are going to be going through that with a fine comb and finding different issues, and there's going to be a lot of comments coming back to the Pentagon. Happy New Year's Eve there. What does this proposed rule basically say about the Pentagon and its plans for CMMC? Well, they're going to do a four-phase plan, and the main goal is to have the full program implemented by October 1st, 2026. That's going to give contractors some time to digest the requirements The phase implementation plan really starts with self-assessment requirements as part of CMMC, which is a lot easier than going out and getting a certification. This will also give the cyber accreditation body time to build up a sufficient number of third-party assessment organizations that will have to go out and do all that auditing of these contractors to make sure they're following the requirements. All right. So by 2026, there's probably nothing China will not know. So hopefully it'll come sooner than that. But these different phases, these are all incumbent on contractors. That's right. Well, it's it's incumbent on essentially giving contractors time to prepare themselves now that these rules are indeed in the federal register as becoming official. It does give DOD program managers the discretion to include CMMC requirements when they see fit once these rules are finalized, which should be sometime next fall. So if there's a big ticket weapons program that needs a lot of protection, DOD program managers could notionally include these requirements immediately. But With the phase implementation plan, the certification have to start showing up in contracts later on down the line, about six months from after the program actually getting off the ground. And those third-party certifications means that's a cost that contractors will have to bear to bring in a third-party certifier. When does all that kick in? That's going to kick in, you know, six months after they uh, finalize the CMMC acquisition rules. That's going to initially start with these 
level two assessments, which are third party assessments. This involves contracts that involve more sensitive controlled unclassified information. But there's also level three requirements, which are for contracts involving what DOD considers perhaps the most sensitive kind of CUI. And those assessments will actually start a year after the requirements being finalized. And these requirements on contractors, besides compliance with having the assessment and so on, basically they have to implement cybersecurity controls that are outlined already by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Yeah, that's right. It's the NIST requirements that have actually been uh, in place in the DFARS for over five years now. All right. Is there anything different from the way the program was originally constituted four years ago? It sounds kind of like what they were originally proposing. There is one uh, small change that we weren't necessarily expecting here, and this is the, the introduction of quote-unquote affirmation requirements that would require a senior official from the prime contractor and then the applicable subcontractor to affirm to complying with these cybersecurity requirements. I spoke to some lawyers and they pointed to the fact that the Justice Department is really ramping up enforcement of the False Claims Act. And so if you have that senior official's signature affirming to meeting these requirements, that really brings that into play if they're doing so and misleading the government. And how deep does this go in the subcontracting layer cake? It's supposed to go as deep as the data goes. So any any data that requires protecting in accordance with these requirements is supposed to flow down to any of those subcontractors who are handling that data. But that will be ultimately up to the prime contractors to work with the government on making sure those subs are following it. So in theory, it could be the subs of subs. It could go three, four, five levels deep. That's really dependent on the program, of course. All right. Any leeway then? If you have to meet the standards, you simply have to do it then. Yeah, you have to do it in order to win an award. However, there is uh, the option for a plan of action and milestones. The government will allow contractors to defer some unmet requirements into those plans. And then companies can win awards with those in place, but they have to close them out within 180 days. All right. And once again, comments close when? February 24th. All right. So get those typewriters going. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.